0: Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Our epistle lesson is found in Galatians chapter 5. We are reading verses 16 through 26 this morning. But I say... let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do ask for your Spirit's help, that you would lead us and guide us into all understanding of what it means to keep in step with your Spirit, and that our flesh and its passions and desires have been crucified with Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you will speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Competition, tension, Conflict. Aren't these three words that we typically use when talking about our Christian experience? That there is a competition inside of us, two things battling out for our focus and our attention. That there is a conflict deep in the depths of our hearts where we feel one thing and yet we feel another and we seem drawn in both places. There is tension. Tension in which we know where life and freedom exist, and yet we oftentimes are drawn to the opposite of that. Rather than obeying the will of God, we choose our own will and our own way. And this is what is true of every Christian who's ever believed in our Lord Jesus, is that we feel these pulls, we feel a competition, we feel a tension, we feel conflicted. And the question for us this morning is, what do we do about that? What do we do about that competition? What do we do about that tension? What do we do with this internal conflict that goes on? And in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul writes to these Christians experiencing this competition who are in the grips of this conflict in their own type of desires. And in verses 16 through 17... Paul confirms for us that part of the Christian life is to be caught in these competing desires. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do." Paul defines here two principles for us, two ways of life, the flesh and the spirit. The flesh here refers to our sinful nature. That is that the way in which we live, the orientation of life when we were captivated by sin and under its control, this is prior to our conversion to Christ. And then there's a way of life that is in the spirit. That is when we, be, when we have been united to Jesus and we've been brought to new life, we are considered to be in the Spirit. And that these two principles then overlap and, and do war with one another. And that's the nature of the conflict that Paul here explains. He commands us to walk in the Spirit, but he acknowledges that we will continue to do the deeds of the flesh if we do not walk in the Spirit. And then he says that they are at war at the end of verse 17, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That the Spirit will keep you from doing the things of the flesh, those things of the flesh that you want to do. And that the flesh will keep you from doing the things of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit that you want to do. And that you'll be an internal mess. And friends, these are helpful words because they put words to the realities of our spiritual lives. The ways that we often feel that there is this deep conflict going on. That we feel the tension and the turmoil. That we know what the good is and yet we often choose the evil. And so Paul confirms that for us, that we have these competing desires So in the middle of that, how does he counsel us? Does he just confirm it? And does he just say, that's your reality, welcome to your new normal? No. Paul presses further. After confirming that you have these competing desires, he leads us in two directions in order that we know what to do with this competition and this deep inner turmoil that drives right down the center of our hearts. And the first thing, though, that he counsels us to do, he's going to say that it's essential that we define and clarify the nature of the conflict. You find this in verses 19 through 23. verse 19, "...now the works of the flesh are evident." Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's a list of 15 if you were counting. And then he goes on. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And that Paul here gives us two lists, two ways of life, the way of the flesh and the way of the Spirit. The way of the flesh is given to us with 15 vices. It's an impressive list. The way of the Spirit is given to us with nine virtues. The way of the flesh here for us is broken down into roughly four categories. It's common for commentators to enumerate them this way. is that there are one category of sexual sins. This is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Then there are religious deviations. That is idolatry and sorcery. Then there are disordered relationships. And this is actually eight of the 15 Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And then there are sins of a lack of self-control or self-temperance. There is drunkenness, or drinking bouts is what the word actually means, and orgies, more sexual unfaithfulness. And so Paul lists and enumerates these four different categories with 15 different words to say this is what the works of the flesh look like. He wants to label it. He amplifies it. He clarifies it for us so that we can understand that this is the true nature of the conflict. Because we need to be honest about something. Were the Galatians, as far as we know, particularly given to sexual immorality, was that the primary thing going on in their congregation at that point? Was it that they were given to licentiousness and drinking bouts? No. Paul did address other congregations who were struggling with those things. But what we know about Galatia is that this was an argument and a division over religious matters. That it was an argument over piety. It was an argument over right beliefs and what it meant to be justified in front of God. And so when Paul focuses upon this list of vices, he gives the predominant amount of focus to those disordered relationships, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And friends, when we think of the vices and the works of the flesh, it is perhaps easier for us to focus on those other areas, those other categories that Paul lists for us. Things like sexual sins and religious deviations and lacks of self-control. But most of the force of his argument here is being put into categories and areas of life that break down community inside the church. And he puts them just on par there with sexual unfaithfulness. That Paul sees the dangers of jealousy and anger and rivalry and dissension equally. That is on par with the dangers of idolatry and sorcery. And he's pressing us here because it's so easy for us to justify those types of behaviors. And that in religious communities in particular, it's very easy for us to put lipstick on the pig And to say that it's justified. And he is allowing us no quarter. He's giving us no place to hide. That he puts these sins in the sins of the flesh. And he wants us to understand. He wants to label them very clearly for us. And amplify it so that we get it. Now as a young man. When I was first starting out in ministry. I had several mentors who were very helpful along the way. And they provided many different services for me. But one of the things that they did early on was they affirmed certain giftings in my life. And they said, Chuck, you know, you seem to have an ability. You have a critical apparatus that's very helpful, that you're able to look at a complex set of data and, and break that down and then come up with solutions to address that. And so they were telling me this when I was in my young 20s. I couldn't even fully appreciate what was being able, what they were saying. And they were also telling me something else that I couldn't fully appreciate. They said, Chuck... Your greatest strengths in life are going to be your greatest weaknesses. And as I matured into my late 20s, I began to understand what they were saying. That that critical apparatus I had that could be so beneficial to people inside of ministry and in the church could also become a great weapon. In fact, when I needed to use that critical apparatus to my own advantage and to my own gain, I found that I could. I found that I could use it in certain ways to criticize others and tear them down, that I could do unhelpful things, and that being confronted, though, in that, I had to begin to ask myself a series of questions. Why was I doing that? And typically what I found is that there were a couple reasons of when that critical apparatus was turning uh, and being used in the service of something else. That normally it was related to bitterness, anger with someone. And if I didn't like something that they had done and I was unreconciled to them, guess what I found it convenient to do? Find some pious reasons to criticize them. And then this, of course, could build divisions because you could gain people into your party and camp and you could separate people into a group A and group B. And then also there was another group of people who I could criticize and I criticized them because I was envious. They were actually ahead of me in life and they had obtained certain goals and had certain achievements and I found them, myself jealous of them. And so what did I needed to do in that insecurity? Criticize them. That was the way that I could control it and bring them down to my own level. And fortunately, those same mentors came back to me and they could help me identify that. And I remember reading the book of Galatians, specifically studying chapter 5. And I was reading a book by Gordon Fee called God's Empowering Presence, and it's about the Holy Spirit. And when he arrived in chapter 5 to speak of the fruits of the Spirit, he says, yes, it's important to look at that vice list and that virtue list and see that most of the vices and most of the virtues are about the Christian community having rightly ordered relationships with one another. And it was like a bolt out of the blue, just striking me down. Everything was exposed It was like all of that stuff that I had been doing to be divisive, that I had done out of envy, that I had done out of bitterness or anger, was just laid bare, and no longer could I put the lipstick on that pig. No longer could I make it smell better. No longer could I hide it or conceal it. Here it was, it was a work of the flesh. And friends, it's important for us, and I believe the reason that Paul goes to such great lengths with a long list of 15 and 9 is so that we can't hide it. So that we can't give pious excuses and justifications for things that are wrong. And he labels them as of the flesh. And then, of course, when he speaks of the Spirit, we find here Things that we all esteem, that we want to hold up, that we believe are important. And of course, at the head of that train is love. Just above this in chapter 5, he says that love is the summary of the law. That to love is to keep all the commandments. Because to love will never violate the commandments of God. And so Paul tells us here that love is at the head of the train of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And of course, he's not giving an exhaustive list. He says, and of such things, as such other things, that you could keep going, but that the fruit of the Spirit's work is to give virtues, not just of an inner disposition where you have a peaceful soul, but that you be a person who keeps the peace, that you be a person who's gentle and long-suffering with others, that you be one who lays down your life for others, that you be a joyous person that is what paul is envisioning here and so he labels the vices and he labels the virtues in order to get very crystal clear for us because that's the first thing that he can do on our behalf when we're dealing with this internal tension and this internal conflict between the flesh and the spirit is that we understand what exactly are the works of the flesh and what exactly is the fruit of the spirit which ones are a human endeavor and which one are, are of divine empowerment? This is what Paul's first move is for us. Now the second move that he makes though, as we deal with this internal tension, is that it's going to be essential for us to understand that the conflict, that conflict raging inside of us is actually a Contradiction. That at the heart of this tension lies a deep and profound and irreconcilable contradiction. Look what Paul says in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now if I were to ask you, if we were to raise our hands... Who here feels like they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? I doubt we would have many takers. But that's also not what Paul says. You see, he doesn't say that those who have actively crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It is not to say that those who have gone about the work of doing that themselves, that's not where he's pointing here. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. That is a past tense verb. It's something that has happened. They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ. And Paul is drawing us here back into his great arguments about what it means to be united to Jesus. That we share in his death. And that when we place our faith in Jesus, sharing in his death, our flesh is crucified. That is the sinful nature that used to dominate and control us. That the power of it is broken. That it has died. And then, of course, he's going to turn in verse 25 to say that we live by the Spirit. And that is the natural logic, that it was the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that gave life to his dead body. And we now share in that Spirit. So we have gone through death and have now been raised in some way in the present to new life. That's his argument, that we are alive in the Spirit. That yes, the flesh still, it continues to harass us. It continues to bother us, but its power and control and grip over us have been broken. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, where Paul makes a very similar argument to that congregation, just for the sake of context. In Romans 8 verse 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And then in verse 11, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And it's the same argument. That the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to you. It will give life to you now and in the future. That the Spirit will breathe the breath of life into you and raise you. And that the old flesh that you once participated in, that you are no longer under its control. You are no longer dominated by its power. That is not who you are. And friends, when we give ourselves to fleshly works and to fleshly action, we are living a contradiction That is not who God declares you to be. It is to double back on the reality that God has labeled you with, the status that God has given you. He's declared that you are free, and it's to bring yourself back into enslavement. It's to imprison yourself once again. One of my favorite movies until TNN got hold of it was Shawshank Redemption. Now it's on about every day. But most of you are familiar with the storyline Andy Dufresne, who ends up being imprisoned, he ends up making friends with many of the prisoners, and it's difficult watching them go through the rigors of life in the prison together. But one who stands out is a man named Brooks. He was the librarian. He was imprisoned in 1905, but in 1954, we never learn exactly what Brooks did, but he was set free. And Brooks, like many of the prisoners at Shawshank Prison, was sent to work at a grocery store on the other side of his imprisonment. And at the grocery store, he was bagging groceries. And through several different aspects of the cinematography, you pick up that Brooks is not doing well. He's struggling deeply. One of the scenes is that Brooks is standing there bagging groceries, and he looks at the manager And says, can I go use the restroom? And the manager, in frustration, says, of course, just go. And you could tell that this had been a repeated event where the manager is exasperated. Of course you can go to the bathroom. But you picked up very quickly that Brooks was asking because he had lived an imprisoned life where he had to ask permission to go to the restroom for over 50 years. And so he could not break the habit. He had been emancipated. He had been set free. He was no longer a prisoner. But yet, what did he return to? He returned to the way that he was accustomed to. And friends, that's the very struggle that we share in. We're like brooks. That we've been granted this tremendous freedom. That we've been made alive in the spirit. That the flesh has been crucified. It's been killed. It's been demolished. And yet, we still submit ourselves to it. We are so accustomed to it. We give ourselves over to it. And rather, what Paul is commanding us to do in verse 25 if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And this is Paul's classic way of arguing, where he says, this is what God has done for you. He states what we call the indicative. And then he backs that up with an imperative. So if we live by the Spirit, this is how you have been brought to life. It's how you were brought to faith. This is how God is working new creation in you. By the Spirit of God. Now he gives you the command, keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is that God has done everything for you in Christ and through the Holy Spirit that now you can walk in the way of general obedience. That you can walk away from those deeds of the flesh in that former life. And yes, there will be struggle and internal conflict, but you don't have to live mired in the contradiction. This is what he is pulling us to. Augustine, in his early writing, The Confessions, actually takes us on an autobiographical journey of his life being born into a Christian home with a Christian mother and then rebelling and rejecting that faith, rising to the heights of the scholarly world of the Roman Empire of that day and then converting and becoming a Christian. It's interesting to read because obviously he's writing about his non-Christian days after he has already converted and he's been made a bishop in the church there the Bishop of Hippo. But Augustine remembers because one of his primary struggles prior to his conversion was sexual faithfulness and chastity or what he calls continence. And because he had a tender conscience to the things of the Christian faith, he knew what he was doing was wrong. And so he once prayed, he said, God, give me continence, but not yet. (laughs) Y'all are way too prudish. Give me continents, but not yet. And then after his conversion, obviously this issue was, was near to his heart and he was struggling. But this is what he prays later on in the confessions and is connected. He says, God, you command continents. Command what you will and give what you command. All my hope is found in your exceedingly great mercy. God, command what you will. But in order to walk in the way of that command, what must God do? He must give what he commands. All my hope is found in your mercy. And this is what Augustine understood. That if not for the grace of God, there would be no forgiveness. And not, if not for the grace of God, there would be no general obedience and, and fruit of the Spirit. That this was dependent upon the Spirit's work in us. That the Spirit must free us from the flesh. Otherwise we'd be condemned under it. That we would be trapped in our sins. Completely exposed and condemned. Locked up in it. But God has done something to crucify the flesh. And yes, God now gives us a command. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those are commands that God speaks to us as his people, as his sons and his daughters. But friends, as that command comes to us, as we hear it, as we interact with God's claim upon our lives, he has given us everything that we need to walk in the fulfillment and walk in the way of that command. It's a truly gracious word. It's not a harsh word in any way. It's designed that we would be delivered into freedom. God, command what you will and give what you command. My only hope is in your mercy. And friends, this is where God would lead us. This is where he will take us in the midst of our tension and the conflicts that we experience between the flesh and the spirit. As we struggle with that contradiction, as we walk back on the freedom that God has given to us. That he would lead us out into the light of day. That we would understand what the works of the flesh are and what the works of the spirit are. And that he would liberate us to see all that he's done For us through Jesus in crucifying our flesh and killing it that we can now put those deeds of the flesh to death because its power and control and grip and dominion over us has been broken and so embrace that freedom don't embrace the contradiction this is what God wants for you let's pray Father, we confess that it is so easy and we are quick to embrace a contradiction about ourselves, that we have been set free, but yet so often we enslave ourselves, that we know that wisdom and truth and life exist in your will, but yet we turn to our own will. Forgive us for that. And by your Spirit, may we keep in step with the Spirit's work. Grant us to run in that direction, to embrace those great truths of the gospel, that we would know what it is to be free. Help us in our weakness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.